Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen wa sallallahu wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam Allahumma salli ala Sayyidina Muhammad salatin tunjina biha min jami' al-ahwali wal-afat wa taqdinana biha jami' al-hajat wa tutahhiruna biha min jami' al-sayat wa tarfa'una andaka wa tarfa'una biha andaka ala darajat wa tubaliguna biha aqsan ghayati min jami' al-khirati fin hayati wa ba'd al-mamat Allahumma wafiqna ila ma tuhibbuhu wa tarda'a wa ja'alna min abidika su'ada wa khitam lana khatma shuhada wa amitna ala kalimatin huda wa sallallahu wa sallam ala sallam muhammad Bismillah, so we left off uh, in this work, we're in this work called Munyat al-Sa'il, Khulasat al-Shama'il So just by way of uh, bringing everyone onto the same page This work is a work of Shaykh Muhammad Abdul Hayy al-Kattani rahimahullahu ta'ala <coughs> who was one of the great scholars of the 20th century um, uh, he, he wrote in many many different fields and he's kind of like for for people who are interested in the world of Asanid and Ijazat and stuff like that just knowing the chains of narration of things a lot he's like one of the main people in the modern period who like basically, if you can connect yourself to him, you can connect yourself to everything in the Muslim tradition because he compiled all of it. And at usually, like every couple generations, there's people like that. That at some point, you don't have to follow your chain all the way back to the Prophet them because that person already did all of the work. You just have to reach them, you know. So he's one of those people, and this work is uh, could be translated as the. I forget what I translated it as, but the kind of like the hope of the the one who's questioning, the hope of the inquirer. Basically, you know, they they kind of title things usually based on what's going to rhyme. <laughs> it's like half meaning and half what's going to rhyme. So, point is, it's an abridgment of the Shama'il, the work on the descriptions of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam of Imam Tirmidhi radiAllahu an. So we left off on the chapter regarding the worship of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. We had covered a lot of things. We covered his clothes, we covered his physical descriptions, we covered his food, his speech, and now we're in worship. The section is quite long, so we're going to skip around here and there because we want to finish the book between today and next Sunday. Because after next Sunday, there's going to be a break for probably like two weeks while uh, everyone's, uh, all of the instructors at the Majlis are going to be in Umrah together. So everyone will be. Uh, no one will be here, inshallah, to, to teach. I don't know if anything else will happen, but the classes at least will be on pause. So, قال المصنف رحمه الله تعالى ونفن الله وياه بعلومه في الدارين آمين إبادة النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم The worship of the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم He used to pray صلى الله عليه وسلم so much so that his ankles would become swollen. He used to stand in prayer so much so that his ankles would become swollen. And uh, they asked him, "Why don't? You, why are you doing this to yourself when you are you you've you're already forgiven that which comes before and that which comes after, Ya Rasulullah?" And he said, "Afala akunu abidan shakura." Should I not be a grateful servant? And uh, this is really really important. You know, it's just, it's a statement that's repeated a lot. But one of the things I think that's really important about this is that. There's different stages in life and different ways that we interact with things and At certain times and points the whole transactional thing is important for some people like it helps them to develop some level of discipline helps them to 
be committed to something so they'll be very particular about the transaction of everything like I'm going to pray all of these salah and then I'm going to do all of my sunnah and I'm going to make like a checklist and I'm going to do it and are there the same people who like when they go to Mecca and Medina they're doing the math on all of like this one is a thousand times more and this one's a hundred thousand times more and this is what they're like and they're looking for Laylat al-Qadr because the mathematics of it and so on and so forth sometimes that can be necessary for uh, attaining some level of motivation but that's not really the goal the goal is to en- engage with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and engage in our relationship with Him in a way that is not dependent upon this transaction it's, it's, it's dependent upon just the, the nature of the love between the, the servant and their Lord so you know they're, they're asking the Prophet like everything's forgiven why are you doing this and what he's telling them is like, it's not a matter of everything being forgiven or not. It's a matter of, this is Allah. And I'm going to worship Allah. Right? Like, it's not, it's not the point. <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, that's not the point. The point is like, this is my Lord and I want to worship my Lord. Some people are like, oh, did you do this? And you did that. And this, this is why, like, one of the descriptions of the people of paradise, right? The ones who are in the shade of Allah on the day when there's no shade except for His. One of those people is the one that gives with their right hand so much so that their left hand doesn't know, right? Like this, is not, meaning like they're not keeping track of it. It's not like here's the amount that I that I gave, and here's the amount that I didn't give, and here's the amount that I put here and there and this time, and like everything's super calculated. And it's more like you know, just do it for Allah and keep it moving. So they told him like, should I not be a grateful servant? This is his answer, sallallahu alaihi wasallam. And. Uh, Oh, what an example. وَكَانَ يَنَامْ أَوَّلَ اللَّيْلِ ثُمَّ يَقُومْ فَإِذَا كَانَ مِنَ السَّحَرِ أَوْتَرْ ثُمَّ أَتَى فِرَاشَهُ فَإِذَا كَانَتْ لَهُ حَاجَةً So basically it's saying he would go to sleep at night and then he would wake up to pray. And when the when it came close to the end of the time of the, the time of the end of the night, then he would pray his witr. And uh, then he would wait for Fajr time. Maybe he spent some time with his family or something like that. He'd wait for Fajr then. When the adhan for Fajr was made, then he would get ready and go immediately to Salat. He would go to the prayer. Uh, and if for some reason he didn't pray his night prayer, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, because he was prevented from it, from sleep, maybe his, he was uh, over, more fatigued than usual, then he, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, would pray that prayer during the day. So, does, does that contradict the whole transactional thing? <laughs> Does it? Yes. Now he's saying like he would pray at night. He had an amount that he would pray at night. But if he didn't pray at night, then he would pray it during the day. And it's it's not about like the number. It's about that this was something that he he wanted to do that. And so if he missed that, then he's going to want to make it up. Sallallahu alaihi wasallam. So he's going to continue to do it during the day. So he used to pray during the day in the morning hours, like the duha time, between after sunrise until the middle of the day. He used to pray that prayer. Um, and you know, usually he wouldn't do more than like eight in that period. Sallallahu alaihi wasallam in that time of the day. He sallallahu alaihi wasallam also uh, used to pray sitting sometimes. So maybe like if there was some issue, maybe uh, he was praying all night. Like sometimes there's there's uh, he's saying here that basically like maybe he's be standing in prayer for a really long time. Because of the amount that he's reciting, so at some point he w- he might sit down for a little bit, 
And then when he gets close to the amount of reciting that he was going to finish, close in the sense of like it specifically says 30 or 40 verses left. <laughs> so like how many verses are being read, right? <laughs> they stand in prayer. They're going to sit down eventually. 30 or 40 verses left. Then he would get up to finish the 30, vor- 30 40 verses standing. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. These people, they, you know, their lives were not filled with couches like these and food and stuff. They, they had a, a toughness to them. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Um, you can pray sitting down. Oftentimes people don't know that. Like not obligatory prayers, you can pray sitting down. Obligatory prayers, it's required to pray it standing up unless you have an excuse. You know, maybe you're sick or maybe you have some sort of fear or something like that, then you can pray sitting down. But uh, otherwise you have to stand. But for optional prayers, sunnah prayers, extra prayers, you can pray sitting down. There's actually a hadith that specifically mentioned that the that the prayer that's sitting gets half of the amount of reward as the one that's standing. But I pray sitting sometimes, like when I'm really tired. And I know if I don't pray sitting right now, I'm not going to pray anything. So I'll take like the one that's a little bit less, like it's better than nothing, you know. So I just pray a couple of extra rakah. Um, so he used to do that, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. He used to pray two rakah, sometimes four rakah before dhuhr. Just to pray two after. These are things like known sunnah prayers of the two before Fajr, four before Dhuhr, or two before Dhuhr, depending on the position. Two after Dhuhr, two after Maghrib, two after Asha. And um, he, as I mentioned, he used to pray, you know, like eight, up to eight in the time of Duha. That prayer between the time when the sun rises and the middle of the day, the forenoon prayer, this prayer the Prophet said about it that. Every day when the person wakes up, every joint on their body, there's sadaqah that's due upon it. You know, like all these joints in my body that Allah has given me, my body functions properly and so on. All of these have sadaqah that's due upon them. And so, smiling at someone is sadaqah, helping someone is sadaqah, so on and so forth. And he said, in two rak'ah, in the time of duha, suffices all of that. Sallallahu alayhi wa alayhi wa sallam. They said about him, it's an interesting statement too. قول أبي سعيد الخضري رضي الله عنه كان يصلي حتى نقول لا يدعوها ويدعو حتى نقول لا يصليها فلذلك so it says basically that that time the morning prayer the that that one in the early part of the day says so sometimes he would pray it so regularly that we said he would never leave it and then sometimes he would leave it so often that we say he doesn't pray it. So part of that is to just show the permissibility. It, you know, when the Prophet ﷺ leaves something and does something, sometimes he would do something, but then he would leave it sometimes to show the people that you can leave it. Because otherwise, if he doesn't leave it, it's something it becomes something that you have to do. So again, he used to pray that uh, four rak'ah before dhuhr, and he used to say about that, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, إِنَّهَا سَاعَةٌ تُفْتَحُ فِيهَا أَبْوَابُ السَّمَاءِ فَأُحِبُّ أَنْ يَسْعَدَ لِي فِيهَا عَمَلٌ صَالِحٌ so he used to say, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, that that is a time, the time before the uh, Dhuhr prayer, and, and that kind of like, in the time of Dhuhr prayer, before the obligatory, it's a time when the door to heaven is opened, and I love for good deeds to be risen from me in that time. He used to say this also about Mondays and Thursdays. It, it's going to come later in the section on fasting. But he used to say that about Mondays and Thursdays, that these are days when the good, good deeds are raised to Allah. And so I like to be fasting on those days. That's what he used to say, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Uh, 
<coughs> what does that mean? So on and so forth. Alhamdulillah. It's revelation. What are you going to do? <laughs> not, not everything you can understand. It's a very important principle. Not everything you can wrap your head around fully in, in some of these things. Like, what we can wrap our head around is like, why do I believe that the Quran is true? Why do I believe that the Prophet ﷺ is the messenger of God? And then if, those, if I believe those things, then I'm willing to believe from them things that I might not be able to wrap my head around. So it's a rational, it's a, it's a rational position to accept something that seems irrational. <laughs> but because you've assumed that you've figured out why you believe in the source. <coughs> he said, Allah, he used to, uh, he said that the people would, when the, when the person who's making the iqamah, the muqim, says, qad qamat as-salat, he used to like for the people to already be standing, basically. You're going to find different opinions. Basically, the, the author here, he's, he, he says, I'm going to, take um, what I think is the most uh, uh, regularly reported from the Prophet them as, rega as regards to prayer and I'm going to put those things here and but like the schools are going to differ on it that's just his conclusion so we're not going to spend that much time on it if you're used to something else <coughs> it's probably likely that there's just another position he used to them before he starts the prayer he used to straighten the lines so he would tell them he would do tasmiyat al-sufuf he would tell them to straighten their lines and they used to stand in their lines to the point that the, the ankles and the shoulders were matched up. Big question in the community now oftentimes is this question of like ankle to ankle and shoulder to shoulder and stuff like that. Sometimes it causes a lot of fitna. Um, the most important thing is to not cause fitna where things where, where fitna is not needed. You know, we have enough things to have fitna about and you can make fitna in those things. Right? Like the heart can only handle so much. Let it let it be upset about things that really need to be upset about. Uh, when it comes to the ankle to ankle stuff, you know, most of at least I can say for sure, the Maliki school and the Hanafi school and the Shafi'i school say that ankle to ankle is not touching each other; it's in line with each other. And they're just really simply their argument in that is that. The hadith says that the kab should, it should, and kab bin kab, bil kab. And if I say marartu bi Yusuf, does it mean that I ran into Yusuf? Like bad doesn't necessarily mean that they're touching each other. It can also mean that they're parallel to each other. So then the, then they say, so that what has to happen is we have to look at the action. Like how did, what did the people actually do? You know, so that's a whole debate. The point is, regardless of whatever position the pr person takes, you can't force it on someone else if it's an area of dis difference of opinion. <coughs> so some people will say, like, you just stand with your feet about four finger lengths apart. Some people will say you try to touch ankles and so on. Whatever, pick whichever one you're going to do and move on with life. Once you say takbir, you shouldn't be thinking about your ankles anymore. Once you say Allahu Akbar, the point now is not your ankles. The point is to worship Allah. And then he would put his right hand over his left hand. Sallallahu alayhi wa alayhi wa sallam. Uh, he would start, he would say Allahu Akbar, and he would start the salah and say Subhanakallam wihamdik nashadu'an That glorified is Allah, and all praises to Him, and blessed is His name, and um, elevated is His uh, status, Subhanahu wa ta'ala, and there's no God except for Him. And then he would do A'udhu Billahi Mishtanajim, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim, read the surah. Um, sometimes they would say Amin when they finish the surah. Sometimes they wouldn't say Amin when they finish the surah. Um, you guys probably know that the madhahib differ on that. So 
Hanafis say it quietly, the Shafi'is say it out loud, so like everyone does something different. Uh, if then everyone, if you say it quietly, then people get angry. They're like, well, the hadith of the Prophet them says that if when the Imam finishes Fatiha and he says Amin, then the angels say Amin at the same time, and the person who's Amin corresponds with the angels Amin, then they're forgiven. That's the hadith. So it doesn't mean you have to say it out loud. <laughs> like who told you you have to yell it in order to say it's not there it's not, it's not actually there in the text maybe that's your opinion that you want to say it out loud but like that's not an evidence of it right, so uh, you know these are not they're all issues of difference the worst thing we can do as a people in my opinion is to fall into this whole rehashing all of the things that the Muslims have already hashed out for 1400 years you know, like we have schools of we have schools of thought. We have schools of thought for a reason, not because there's not like they have a different Quran and Sunnah. They have the same Quran and Sunnah. Everyone has the same Quran and Sunnah. It's almost offensive when it's said, like, oh, you know, I don't follow the Imams. I follow the Quran and Sunnah. What were they following? They were following like whatever they felt like. Astaghfirullah. Like, these are the greatest people that we have in Islam. Of course, they're following the Quran and Sunnah. That's their method of following. They're just presenting one methodology to have integrity in how I follow the Qur'an and the Sunnah. And that was fleshed out over centuries. That's this method. And there's this method. And, it's ex and it's, it was accepted amongst themselves. Like Even amongst themselves it was accepted that this is okay. This is something that exists. And then there's a limit to it. You know, It's not like free for all whoever wants to have an opinion. That's actually what happens when you get rid of the schools is that then it's a free for all. Because they gave you the vetted approaches to how to engage with the Qur'an and the Sunnah. But if everyone can just go to the Qur'an and Sunnah, then I have an opinion and Fulan has an opinion and Fulan has an opinion everyone else has an opinion, yes. Are there evolving schools? Or They're all evolving. Okay. Up to now. Oh, no. No. Nobody can, it's, it's virtually impossible for someone to reach <coughs> at this time the level that these people reached Just by circumstances and everything else um, But like vast majority of people of knowledge Will train themselves to attain a level to have an opinion on something uh, Through studying a school now it's like now it's a bigger issue. We all just opened up. It's and I can't leave it because it's gonna just leave a lot of confusion. So why is it that we don't have things like that? What did the imams? Do? What did the four imams do? And others that that were in that early period, they were mu they were mujtahid in the philosophy and in the application. So philosophy being the usul, the application being the furu'ah. So what does that mean? That means they, through their vast learning and learning through the people they learned from, which are generally tabi'een or sahaba, the four imams, were students of tabi'een or sahaba for the most part. Um, maybe tabi' tabi'een for the later ones. But they, they learned all of this body of material and they laid out a philosophy for how to approach it and they applied that philosophy to the myriad questions that came to them. So you have in the school um, uh, an approach and an and a application. So then people who would choose a particular school, they follow the approach. They, not they might follow the approach and come to a different conclusion. That's why the schools evolve over time. So like the opinion of the school doesn't, for example, the opinion of the Hanifi school is not always Abu Hanifa's opinion. It, it might change over time. 
that becomes the position of the school becomes something else. And there's of course many issues that are not addressed by Abu Hanifa that are going to come up later on, especially in finance and economics and stuff like that, right? But there's an approach that they're going to follow. So you have people now who will choose one of these approaches, generally, and they'll apply it. There are a handful of people, like in the um, last couple hundred years, that tried to do kind of like both. But in the end, they're still like so largely building on what came before them. Then the question becomes then also the four imams, they did this for everything. They did it for the entirety of the approach and they did it for the entirety of the application in every field. And politics and law and, and economics and ibadah, worship, all of this stuff. Now you might have someone who like, they so specialized in economics and they might come up with a different conclusion or even a different approach than someone else in the past. But it's vetted somehow. Like it's it, like they focused on it. So maybe they're able to reach a very, very high level. But they won't be like the imams in the sense that that wouldn't be across all of the fields. They might reach like a certain area. Um, That's a good topic. It's probably. I think Ustad Fuad probably talked about it a little bit on Wednesdays, but it's a big one. But nonetheless. There will be different opinions on prayer, is the point. <laughs> there's, a, there's a variety of opinions on prayer, and it's okay. Can, uh, you know, we, don't, we can move on from it and just focus on prayer, inshallah. Uh, he would read the Fatiha. He would briefly pause afterwards. Then they would read another surah. Um, of course, there's the Rakua, the Sujood. We're, we don't want to turn it into a Salat class. The basics of salat, you know, do this here, do this here, do this here. He's just describing it. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, what he would do. Uh, and then there's a tahiyyat at the end. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. Hadahi as salatul Part of the reason why this is kind of like a little bit controversial, probably what he's saying here, doesn't make sense to us because we don't live in his environment. He's living in, in Morocco, and Morocco is heavily Maliki. So he's taking positions here in his text that are like, you shouldn't keep your hands at your side. You should hold your hands across your stomach or your chest. You shouldn't, uh, when you finish, when you say salam at the end, you say salam to both sides. The Maliki school, you only say salam to one side. So he's actually taking, we read it, we're like, okay, sure. I mean, like, no big deal. But for the context that he was living in, it was a big deal. Next section is the, the fasting of the Prophet wasallam. Again, he would fast so much that they would say he's fasting like all the time like he's never going to break his fast and then he would not fast so much that they would say he's never going to fast so just again to kind of like show you can do this you can do that sometimes you do that. like it's okay do things take a break do things it's it's, not, it's fine and the only month they said but the only month that he he would fast in its entirety without any days missing is uh, the month of ramadan and he would fast most of Shaban, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. He would, again, as we mentioned, fast on the Tuesdays uh, or Mondays and Thursdays. Yawm al-Athnain wal Khamis. Two. I read Athnain and I called it Tuesday. Did you catch it? Anyone? The Arabic speakers would catch it. <laughs> it's day number two. Athnain. Yawm al-Athnain. So I called it Tuesday. Tuesday. The day number two is Monday. Al-Athnain wal Khamis. Thursday. Uh, some things, subhanAllah, by the way, like no matter how much you study something, they're really hard to overcome. So they say like in uh, sometimes in these world wars and stuff, when you have spies and things like that, if they wanted to figure out 
like someone seems like they really are not they really infiltrated they want to know are they actually a native speaker or not they get them to do long division because once you start doing math you you're going back to your native language <laughs> every language you learn is very hard to do it in another language like a language that you study second a second language is very hard to learn uh, so this, for some reason, the days of the week, I just can't get them. I, I can remember Khamis is Thursday, and I can remember Ethnain is Monday, and then all the other ones, I ha Tuesday and Wednesday, I have to go to one of the Thursday or Monday every single time to figure out what Tuesday or Thursday is. <laughs> 15 years, I can't figure this one out. وَيَقُولْ تَعْرَضَ الْأَعْمَالُ فِي يَوْمِ الْأَثْنَيْنِ وَالْخَمِيسِ فَأُحِبُ أَنْ يُعْرَضَ عَمَلِي وَأَنَا صَائِمٌ So he would say, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, the deeds are shown to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala on the Monday and Thursday and I like for my deeds to be shown when I'm fasting sallallahu alayhi wa sallam What about his recitation sallallahu alayhi wa sallam that's another part that comes Qira'atun Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam He would read the Quran if he read the Quran he would read it very clearly so we said before that uh, the meaning of tajweed uh, or one of the one of the definitions of tajweed is the knowledge by which the person reads the Qur'an such that every single letter gets its right. Every single letter gets its right. So he would read Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam harfan harfan. Every single letter gets its right. Um, and one of the things that they would do at least in Egypt when they're, they're teaching you that is they, and it's also like a necessary consequence of the method of teaching is that if you're gonna give every single letter its right you're not going to be reading in any sort of melody. So one of the, the big problems, if anyone goes and studies Tajweed, one of the big challenges of studying Tajweed is that everyone has their little melody that they recite in. And as long as you're sticking to your melody, you cannot learn to recite properly. So you have to get rid of that and you have to start over. And once you start over, and you're, because usually when you're doing that, also you're not focusing on every single sound. But if you're going to go and focus on every single sound, the melody drops. And next thing you know, it sounds really boring. But that's necessary in order to get to the point where you can make it not boring, inshallah. So and when he would read Fatiha, he would stop after every verse. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Ar-Rahmanin Rahim. Maliki Yawmiddin. He would stop after every single one. Um... Then the, the shaykh here, he has this long piece about how he read Surah Al-Fatiha to his shaykh, ayah by ayah, who read it from his shaykh, who was the shaykh of Al-Azhar, and like this and this and this. It's a long senad, I told you. He's very specialized in <coughs> chains of narration back to the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So th he would read it like that, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. This is like the whole section. This is Isnan. Uh... Sometimes he وسلم, would read and like when you're praying at night by yourself, for example, you could read you could read out loud, you can read to yourself. So it's like say you're praying Isha by yourself, you're praying Qiyam by yourself or something. You can read silently or you can read out loud. So he would do that sometimes silently, sometimes out loud, them. By the way, just another side note that when when it said reading silently that doesn't actually mean silence. This is part of the reason why these things are meant to be studied with teachers because people misunderstand them. Like if your mouth is closed and not moving in Salat 
I w it's just not good to do that. You should probably change it. So re reading is to actually move your mouth. Is to move your mouth. Your tongue is moving, and so that's what it means to read. To read silently means you're moving your mouth and stuff such that you might be able to hear yourself, but nobody else can hear you. That's as high as it goes. That's silently. But your mouth is still moving. It's making the movements of reading. Uh, and to read out loud is such that you do that and someone next to you could hear you. That's the general definition. <coughs> uh, very, very important, for example, if you're going to be leading people in Salat, that you know this. That like you're going to lead someone in Dhuhr. You know. Sometimes I see people, sometimes in the masjid you might see people, they're sitting down and they're praying by themselves. Maybe they're praying Sunnah or something. And they're just... And you're like... <laughs> uh oh. Fardain. Fardain. It's an individual obligation to review these things. To know, like, okay, how do I actually pray properly? And that's why, you know, generally, like, this is where the medhabs come in, right? So I'm just going to study a particular medhab. How do I pray properly and how do I clean myself properly? Because if I get into all the differences of opinion and stuff, I'm going to go crazy. There's too many differences of opinion. I just need to know one proper way for myself, not for anyone else, for myself. It's not for me to go and get in everyone else's businesses. Uh, so he would sometimes out loud, sometimes quietly, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, وَكَانَ حَسَنُ His voice was very beautiful, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Next section is on the crying of the Prophet, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Uh, this things like this are really interesting to me because I'll tell you, like, part of our mandate as Muslims is to make the Prophet them our guide. This is the the most important thing we can do, regardless of who we take as a teacher, regardless of who we respect, who we look up to, regardless of what we think is right or wrong. It's extremely important that we take the Prophet them as our guide, and that means that that is going to Trump everything else. So, yeah, I know. It's just, I couldn't think. I always get stuck on that. I want to use it, and then I'm like, but it's Trump. Shouldn't we, like, you know, avoid these kind of words? Smadish, uh, honey. Uh, so, it, you know, like that, the, the example of the Prophet them supersedes everything else. Um, and as the standard by which everything else is judged. And if I have a question about something, like, I don't know, that doesn't really seem like it's in line with the sunnah, then that's a valid thing to think about. Like, in the end of the day, I'm responsible in front of Allah for myself. And uh, so I want to know the Prophet Why I'm saying this in this context is because we have a whole lot of things culturally in all kinds of different cultures and stuff that tell us various ideas. And uh, oftentimes that's what fall, fall, we fall back on, right? We fall back on whatever it is that we have culturally, whether or not it's actually part of the Sunnah of the Prophet them. And that's why, again, studying these things is so important. So culturally, the vast majority of uh, like cultures, American culture was the same when I grew up. Now there's like nothing is stable anymore here, um, for better or for worse. But in many other places, similar that like men don't cry, right? Like the way we grew up in school was that men don't cry. That was not something that we do. And we've talked about this before. But you're going to read about the Prophet ﷺ and you're going to see that the Prophet ﷺ cried. 
So if you think you're better than the Prophet and you know better, then, you know, that's your own business. But the Prophet and them cried. So, you know, there's, there's times for that. Uh, so it's said about him sallallahu alaihi wasallam that like when first and foremost that when he would pray when he would pray you could hear like from his his chest that is like a sound of boiling almost like the amount of uh, like a pot is boiling because the amount of uh, he's being affected by the reading of the Quran he's crying inside sallallahu alaihi wasallam whether or not it comes out, his inside is like that. They say Abu Hanifa was the same, radiallahu قُلْتُ بِمَّا يُشَاهِدُ فِي صَلَاتِهِ مِنْ جَلَالِهِ وَجَمَالِهِ وَكَمَالِهِ وَأَنْوَاءِ تَجَلِّيَاتِهِ أَلَّتِي لَوْ حُمِلَ غَيْرُهُ مِنْهَا أَدْنَى قَطْرَ مِنَ الشَّحَاتِهِ لَدَابَتَ ذَاتُهُ وَتَلَاشَتْ أَجْزَاؤُهُ This is an intense statement. So he's saying, why is he, like, why is the sound coming from him? Sallallahu <coughs> Says because of the magni- mag- magnificence of the beauty and the majesty of Allah, and the realizations of that that are descending upon his heart in the time of his prayer, that are so the magnitude of them is so great that if it had happened to anyone else, they wouldn't have been able to handle it. But when that when the Prophet them experiences that, it just it it affects him in this way. Sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Uh, he cried sallallahu alaihi wasallam when he heard his companion recite wajitna bika ala haulai shahida in surah an-nisa i believe yeah um, i did a research on this one time i wanted to figure it out because i believe it was abdullah bin mas'ud the prophet sallallahu alaihi he was with him and he said iqra alayya al-quran he said abdullah you know read some quran to me and abdullah told him aqra alayka wa alayka unzil like should I I'm going to read it to you And it was revealed to you <laughs> Like how can I do that <laughs> And the Prophet Sallallahu Told him أحب أن أسمعه من غيري So beautiful like, It's so beautiful When you really like Imagine the circumstance So he said I love to hear it From other than me I love to hear it From other than me Yeah it was revealed to me But I love to hear it From other than me So Ibn Mas'ud He started to read From Surah An-Nisa And when he got to this verse Which is verse 41 and the Prophet ﷺ was crying and he told him, that's enough, that's enough. So I, I, I looked it up one time, but I, I mean, like I just like went to a recording, like maybe Shaykh al-Husri or someone. I said, like, how far, how long does it take to get from verse 1 of Surah An-Nisa to 41? Because I was curious. Like, how long did the Prophet sit there and listen to him when he told him, read me some Qur'an? How long did it take? It's, it's actually a decent amount of time to get from 1 to 41. It's not like two minutes or something. I mean... Uh, I wish I could remember it right now, but you know, you can do it as an exercise if you like. And that verse it says, and we will bring you over them as a witness. That's the verse. So he's reciting the verses, verses, and then this verse addresses the Prophet them and it says, We will bring you as a witness over them, meaning all of the people on the day of judgment. So when he reached that point, he the Prophet told him that's enough, and when he looked up he saw that the Prophet them was crying. That's enough. <coughs> and uh, his eyes would well with tears when, for example, like his um, his children died. Um, when Uthman ibn Mat'un radiallahu an died, the Prophet sallallahu cried and he kissed him. Um, when his daughter Umm Kulthum died, she, he he cried sallallahu alaihi wasallam. 
so all of these, you know, he had different point is he had different times in his life when he would cry sallallahu alaihi wasallam and there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, I think it's reasonable to take it a step further and to say that uh, as with most things there is a middle ground, right? Like someone who's crying all the time. Uh, it might not be bad, but it's just something to think about. You know, it, it might actually be okay. <laughs> Sayyidina Umar radiallahu anhu, this, they had like permanent, they say he had permanent streaks on his face from the amount of crying that he would do. Sayyidina Umar and Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu, when they wanted to, when the Prophet them was sick at the end of his life and they told, he said that he wants Abu Bakr to lead the salat. Then Aisha radiallahu anha, she said, she, she asked the Prophet, like, choose someone else because my father, when he reads the Quran, he can't control himself. So like he's going to be crying so much that we won't be able to do the salat. And the Prophet said, no, he's the one to lead the salat, right? So this is like, that's okay to, to cry a lot even. if the you know. But sometimes, some people, they cry out of love and they cry out of the depth of, depth of their relationship with Allah and stuff like that. That's okay. But sometimes there's like a, sometimes there's other things that might result in that and so it just needs some exploration but the other side of it also needs some exploration which is people who don't cry at all someone who doesn't cry at all that also needs some exploration and so you know may Allah help us to um, to balance these things inshallah uh, the next section is on the bedding of the Prophet them, or his bed essentially what would he sleep on what would he sleep on sallallahu alayhi wa sallam <coughs> so his bed in the home of Aisha radiallahu anha was a tanned skin of like an animal, a tanned skin of an animal that was stuffed with palm fibers. Essentially, this is not very comfortable, you know, like it's not super soft. There are palm fibers in the skin of an animal. And that's what he used to sleep on, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Um, and he had similar things, you know, um, in other houses. At some point, there was a, someone brought him like something nicer. There's a couple incidents where people brought him things that are nicer. Like one, one lady companion, she she came and visited one of the wives of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, and she saw what he sleeps on because that's like one room, right? So <laughs> if you if you come to the house, there's only one room. You're gonna see everything. It's not. So she saw it and she felt like, oh my God, he's sleeping on that. So she brought him like an actual mattress, you know. And then the Prophet ﷺ came home and he saw it and he was like, where did this come from? And I said, so-and-so came and she brought it and he was like, you can take it back to her. And like, I'm, gonna, I'm fine with the thing that I have. And another time they, they brought him something that was nicer and it affected like his sleep. He slept more comfortably. So they got rid of it after that. Because if he sleeps more comfortably, it's going to be harder to get up. And the praying in the night was more important. Mm. I told you, these are strong people. Strong people. His humility, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. His humility, tawadu'uhu, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Kana yaqul la tutruni kama atra'at al-nasara Isa ibn Maryam. إِنَّمَا أَنَا عَبْدٌ فَقُولُوا عَبْدَ اللَّهِ وَرَسُولُ صلى الله عليه وسلم It's a good principle. He said, don't like overdo, don't overdo the praising of me such that like like the way that the 
uh, Christians did with Asa, the son of Miriam. Rather say, I am a servant. Rather, I am a servant. So say, servant of God and his messenger. Abduhu wa Rasuluh. This, of course, is the source of a lot of conflict around the poetry that praises the Prophet and stuff like that. So there's many things that are said in response to that. Like, oh, you guys are praising him too much and so on and so forth. First, first thing that's said in response to that is um, Allah praised him. Like, whatever I'm going to say to praise the Prophet and them, Allah praised him. It's not, there's a limit on what you're going to get to. Uh, another thing that's said is like, the Muslims know that the Prophet is the Messenger of God. Yeah, they're not going to make the Prophet the Son of God. The Muslim, our our aqidah is very clear. There's Allah is God and the Prophet ﷺ is the Messenger of God. No matter how much I praise him, he's still the Messenger of God. He's not Allah. So as long as everyone's clear on that, it's okay. You know, it'll be fine. If someone's not clear on that, then you have a problem. Um, if you're assuming someone else is not clear on that, then you might have a problem. Allahu Alam, what the situation is. But he's on Allah and then would say that to them. He was uh, one another example of his humility, sallallahu alaihi wasallam, was that he it used to be said, like a woman. He says, "Jaatu imraatun fi haja, faqala ejlasi fi ayi turq al Madina, shitti ejlas ilayki." So she said, a woman came to him. She had a need, and he told her, sallallahu alaihi wasallam, "Go and like choose any of the the roads of Medina to sit in." And I'll sit with you and, and, and take care of your situation, whatever it is. So he, it wasn't like, you know, it was in public, like a private public. Public in the sense that people are around, but private in the sense that she can talk to him about her issue. Sallallahu alayhi wasallam. He used to visit the, those who were sick. He used to go to the janazah prayers. He used to ride on donkeys and mules. He used to, yujibu da'wat al-abd. If a, if a slave invited him to some food or invited him to spend time with him and stuff like that, he would answer that invitation, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And so he would ride on donkeys, he was all these things. He would eat from, from very simple bread. Um, even if food was like borderline not good anymore, he would eat it, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, you know, if it's not going to make you sick. Um, there's a beautiful story like that of one of the sheikhs in the modern period, Allah Yerhamu. Um, I think I know who it was, but I'm, I, I'm not, I might mix him up with someone else, so I won't say it. But basically what he would do, and especially you could imagine this kind of like in uh, more places where like you have a corner f fruit stand, right? Like you have a corner, your neighborhood has a fruit stand. Everyone goes to the same fruit stand, gets their fruit. It's not these big like industrial things, right? You go to your fruit stand. So the sheikh said they said about the sheikh that he would go to the fruit stand, and he would look through the fruit, and he would always pick the ones that were almost spoiled. Like he would pick the worst fruit in the fruit stand, and they asked him about it, and he was like, "Well, someone has to, like, if nobody eats the fruit, then it's going to get thrown away, or it's going to be a loss to the owner of the fruit stand." Or someone else is going to have to eat it. So I'd rather that I'm the one who eats it and he gets his money and everything. Like it's, it's better all around if I just eat the fruit that's not that good. And everyone else gets the better fruit. And the person who owns the thing, they get their money. Like subhanAllah. So the Prophet ﷺ was humble like that. وَكَانَتْ لَهُ دِرْعٌ مَرْهُونَةٌ عِنْدَ يَهُودِي فَمَا وَجَدَ مَا يَفُكُّهَا حَتَّى مَاتٍ One of the things that's narrated about him ﷺ is that he had a shield 
that was being held as collateral for a loan that he had taken from a, a, a Jew in Medina, that he never, until the time that he died, he didn't attain enough to pay him what he needed to pay him in order to get the shield back. So it was being held till the time that he died, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Is that comment here? <coughs> Sometimes you, I feel like I read this comment somewhere. It's not here. Um... Like why why would that be the case? Would you wonder that? Like he could take a loan from anyone, sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Why would he take it from this Jewish neighbor or Jewish person that lived near him and stuff like that? And to the point that his shield is with him and stuff. You know, one of the things that I recall hearing or reading sometime was that, and I, it's it's relatable at some level if you think about it. Like if if you're in a position. Where and, and this is the Prophet If you're the Prophet and you ask someone like, I need a little bit of money, uh, I want to take a loan, what do you think is going to happen? They're not going to take, they're not going to give him a loan. Everyone's just going to give him money. Right? So, but, so he's like, I need to go to someone who will actually give me the loan. Right? Because <laughs> he doesn't want it as a gift. He wants like, I'll, I'll take care of my own stuff. I don't want you guys to do this. It's very interesting when you think about kind of even like the ethics around money and positions of power and stuff like that and how does that whole thing play out because there's that's like that's that's this is an area where a lot of shadiness occurs right because someone has a position of power so they know like okay I can get money out of people in very subtle ways that like you it's really hard to say that it was corrupt but it's kind of corrupt you know so the but the prophet sallallahu was this like this conscious about these kind of things right so the, it's it's with the Jew because if you took it from the Muslims they would just give him the money right yeah I actually heard in the khutbah that I went to on Friday the reason for this mm. and that it's because the like the Jews and the Christians had already disagreed with them at such a fundamental level that if he asked them for like if they had a, if they had a, if they had already said no to the message then like, then they would say no to a loan if they didn't want to. Do it. Yeah, if they didn't want to do it, the then they would say, would say no. Right. Yeah, subhanAllah. Alhamdulillah, I wasn't wrong. Alhamdulillah. Every time someone says something, I'm like, yeah, Allah. I hope what I remembered was right. It's really scary because, like, I don't know if you guys realize, like, you probably have had it happen in your own life. There's a lot of things you think you remembered right, and then you go back and you look at it and you didn't remember it right. And now you're talking about, like, Dean, right? You're talking about the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. So it's like really scary. That's why. That's another reason I like to teach out of books. It's just cleaner, it saves problems. Someone told me. I asked one of my teachers about this, this idea because I told him like I don't like to answer questions people ask me, if if I'm not like really familiar with the question because I've answered it ten times already. I don't like to answer questions that I can't review before I answer them. And he told me, he said you know my sheikh, so and so. Uh, who was like a master of the Maliki Madhab he said every single time someone would come to him and ask him a question he would say hold on one second and he would reach in his bookshelf and he would pull down like the main text in the Maliki school and he would look it up and he would say this is what the answer is even though he knew it he already knew it but like he on principle he wants to go and look in the text 
So alhamdulillah, thank you for sharing that, Yasin. Uh, um, hopefully, uh, who said that? Which khutbah was it? Dr. Shadi. Okay, alhamdulillah. There's nothing. That's public information. You said a public khutbah or not? You know, it's public. Send uh, them Mm-hmm. I haven't come across it. Yeah. I don't know. Allahu Alam. I would imagine it's probably there somewhere, but I haven't come across it. Uh, he said, Allahu Alam used to also say that um, from this one of the hadith that he used to, this is not actually part of it. So he used to say, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, that when he went to make Hajj, he made Hajj on like a a very simple animal um, dressed in like very simple clothes it was very cheap and he used to, he, he would say sallallahu alaihi wasallam so remarkable this is the dua of the prophet sallallahu going into hajj his dua is oh allah make it a hajj that has no showing off and no want of like reputation it's not for anything allah make this hajj not for anything in the eyes of the people it's just going to hajj you know, it's, and this is one of these tough questions. You know what I mean? Like, this he was so simple, sallallahu You see people like that. Some of you may have seen the thing that I posted from Sheikh Ahmed Taha Rayyan, Hafidhullah. You know, Sheikh Sheikh Rayyan is uh, the Sheikh of the Malikis in Egypt. It's like today's Maliki Day or something. I'm not a Maliki, just for the record. Um, Sheikh Rayyan is a beautiful, beautiful person. If you just put his name into YouTube and you just watch some of his videos, they're just so sweet. He's like this really old man who's, he's been like the dean of comparative law in a bunch of different universities. He's one, he's like one of the biggest scholars in the world, without exaggeration. And there's a picture of him sitting in the back of a, a what do they call it, tuk-tuk? And uh, he's like going to teach his class, you know? He's just like this old man sitting with his cane in the back of this like really grimy, Transportation. He doesn't have a car. He doesn't have anyone who can give him a ride. He doesn't. He's just, you know, he's one of the great, literally one of the greatest scholars in the world, without exaggeration. And he's fine. He's just chilling. Yeah. He's just chilling. What is it? What's that to him? You know. Should he? Should it be like that? Probably not. I don't know what the system is around all of that. It shouldn't probably be like that. You know, for someone in their old age and and his stature and everything else, but that's the way he is. I know some people who studied with him directly for a number of years. They said this is consistently his manners. It's not like something new in his home for years. Um, since you just talked about food, I just want to. There's this question I've had for a long time. I had two questions really quickly, but let me talk about one of them. You know, sometimes food falls on the floor. Mm-hmm. What's the Islamic ruling on that? Because I remember there's a story about Aisha, how she had, you know, there's competition and hostility among the sister wives. So she had her servant trip one of her sister wives' servants and the food fell on the floor. Mm. But the Prophet, peace be upon him, ate that mm. food anyway, just to kind of mm. teach her a lesson. Mm. But what's the ruling on that? So if my, I, I have a plate and suddenly, you know, food falls on the floor, do I eat it anyway? Do I throw it away? Uh, what are the guidelines for that? <laughs> I think that happens to a lot of people. Yeah, I don't really know. I don't, I don't know that. 
I can answer that one off the top of my head. And then I heard a, I heard someone also say that, I, I don't know how authentic this is, he said that if you are going to eat something that you're not sure about, you could still say, Ya Allah. I, I don't know if the Prophet, peace be upon him, said this, but he said, Ya Allah, um, uh, let me benefit from the good that comes from this and protect me from the harm that comes from it. Hmm. No. I've never heard that before. Okay. I mean, one of the things that comes up in the books of fiqh is the question of what is the default ruling on food? Mm-hmm. And um, it's an important issue because uh, people will say like the default ruling on things is that they're permissible, mm-hmm. right? That's what the default is that it's permissible. And it's not usually like entirely thorough to say that. Default ruling on all things is not that they're permissible. Uh, default on, in general, you could say that, but they say that the default on relationships and food is that they're impermissible. Meaning, you should know what you're eating. If you have a question about what you're eating, then you need to find out. Uh, I th- there might be some debate on that. Not entirely sure, but uh, I know that's one of the issues that comes up. So, I don't know that dua just seems. Okay. Allahu yeah, I was Sometimes, you know, food just fall in the form like, I don't, should I eat it? Should I not eat it? Take it a sin for throwing it away? Uh, you know, uh, there's probably different angles that we could look at that from. But the Prophet ﷺ was very humble. He was very humble, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And, uh, you know, I should probably stop there before I wade into water that's deeper than my head. <laughs> yes, Shadi. Going back to the shield, where you said uh, yeah. yeah. So I know one of the biggest things when someone dies is uh, if they owe someone else money because that's not forgiven unless the other person produces it. Right. So does that it covers the cost of the thing, and if they, but they don't pay it back, then you keep it, right? I, I don't know off, uh, exactly what happened in that case, um, what happened to that shield. Well, I'm, I would imagine that the companions didn't let that shield go, you know what I mean? Like, uh, they, they didn't let things of the Prophet and them go lightly. They, wa- they wanted to keep as much as they possibly could. Tabarrukan, that was, by the way, in the modern Muslim community, everyone's like, has an allergy to the idea of getting barakah from something to the Prophet and them. This was an established practice of the companions. Like, he would make wudu, they would catch the water that falls from him. They would uh, take his, his, anything they can get from the Prophet and them, they would, they would take it. Um, you know, whether or not that's easy for us to understand sometimes, Allahu alam, but it's, it's there in countless narrations. It's not like one or two. Uh, and it says also about this from his humility that his companions they wouldn't stand up for him because they knew that he didn't like it <coughs> so you know, this idea of like standing up for someone when they come into the room they know that the Prophet's eyes on them didn't like that so because they knew that he didn't like it when he would come in the room they wouldn't do it 
But that doesn't mean that you can't stand up for people. Whether or not you can stand up for people when they come in a room, it's a different conversation. He mentions here Imam al we wrote like a little book on it, and he himself, the author, wrote a little book on it. Um, and there's cases where he stood up, like we know he stood up for Fatima when she would come in the room, and she would stand up for him when he would come into the room. So it's not like just one incident. It's very important. Like in, in the religion, we don't make conclusions based off one incident. And if we want to understand the issue, you have to bring the entire body of what we have to bear on the issue in order to understand the issue. Uh, his day, sallallahu alayhi wasallam. I know we're getting towards the end of our time. Um, he would split up the time in his day. Like he had a time for his family, he had a time for himself, he had a time for his Lord. Uh, the time that he had for himself, he would split it up between himself and the people. So he would actually give it even more to the people. Um... And, uh, you know, he would go to the people, he'd spend time with them, we already covered all that stuff. Uh, eat with them, spend time. You know, the thing about the Prophet them is that, like, the majority of his teaching was not lectures. It's, it's, that's a, a part of this whole thing that we, it's hard to figure out now. Like, how do, we, how do we navigate this whole thing in a context that's different than that context, you know? Like, these are, these are people that saw each other all the time. And the majority of his teaching was in spending time with people. So they'd be, he'd be sitting outside, they'd sit and they'd talk with him, they'd be in the masjid, they'd pray together, they'd talk together, they'd go out, they'd have some food, whatever, they go to battle. I mean, they're living life together, and that's the majority of how he taught people. It's not so often that it's like the Prophet stood up and he gave this long lecture. So there's khut, there's Jummah, and there's Eid, and there's like Hajj, Day of Arafah. These are like the khutbas. You don't have a whole lot of khutbas other than that. Most of it is spending time with the people, um, which is, you know, very beautiful actually in some ways. Um, he would ask the people, says some things here about, um, so they would they would come to him, they would get everything they need from him, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So he would say, for example, So he would tell them, the one who's not, who's here, let them speak to the one who's not here. And let them bring, t- tell, me, tell me about the one who has a need, but is not capable of bringing it to me. He would tell the people that. Like there's people in the community, they have needs, and they're not bringing them to me. You go to them, you figure out their needs, and you bring me their needs so that we can take care of their needs. Um, and then he would say, فَمَنْ بَلَغَ حَاجَةَ مَنْ لَا يَسْتَتِعُ إِبْلَاغَهَا بَلَّغَ حَاجَةَ مَنْ لَا يَسْتَتِعُ إِبْلَاغَهَا ثَبَّتَ اللَّهُ قَدَمَيْهُ يَوْمٍ قِيَامًا He said, the person who brings the need forth for the person who has a need and can't say it, then Allah will make their feet firm on the Day of Judgment. Uh, and so they would bring him the needs of the people, They would he would help them in whatever way they could. Um, uh, وَكَانَ يَخْزِنُ لِسَانَهُ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمْ إِلَّا فِي مَا فِيهِ مَصْلَحَ أَوْ فَائِدَةً So he would, literally it means like he would put his tongue in storage. Right? Like his, he, he would hold his speech from anything that didn't have benefit in it or didn't have a, uh, something good for the people. Um, he would take care of the people. He would treat them nicely. He would spend time with them. Um, he would ask them about each other. You know, yes, anunas, akhbar anas. He asked them like, "What's going on with the people?" and so on and so forth. It's very important. 
I mean, sometimes in the Muslim community, it's like that. You just get in this like very insular, I'm worried about myself thing, and you stop caring about what's going on with the people. That's not really from the Sunnah of the Prophet Like the Prophet cared about the people deeply, so much so that like he spent his whole life with them. Sallallahu alaihi wasallam. He would people who were doing good. Like if if he saw something that was good, he would encourage it and he would strengthen it. And if he saw something that was not good, he would he would point out that it's not beautiful, that it's ugly, and he would try to uh, push you know push away from it. He was balanced in his affairs. He wasn't disagreeable with people. Um, and and so on and so forth. Sallallahu alaihi wasallam. He would say like the best of people with him was the pe- was the person who gives sincere advice. Sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Like, look how contradictory this is to some some people in positions of power. Like the people they the, the only people they want around them are the people that agree with them on everything. Right, they don't ever tell them. Is it the most people that the Prophet them liked the most were the ones who were honest in their advice, and they were sincere with it. And not just that they're getting angry or something, but they they just they care and they they're honest with it. Um, and he would help the people, and he would uh, he wouldn't لا يقوم ولا يجلس إلا على ذكر لا يقوم ولا يجلس إلا على ذكر. He wouldn't stand and he wouldn't sit except that he was remembering Allah Subhanahu wa Taala. He was always making dhikr sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Uh, if he went to a people, he would sit wherever they told him to sit. And uh, whoever he sat with, he would give them their share of his, of his smile, of his kindness, um, of his generosity. Um, like the, anyone who sits with him wouldn't think that anyone else who's sitting with him is more important to him than they are. It's remarkable. Remar- like if you really think about this, this is re- it's incredible. It's like, how is that even possible? Every single person that would sit with him, they wouldn't think that someone else in the gathering is more important than them because of how he interacted with every single person. Sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Okay. He wouldn't be like in a rush to get up. He wouldn't cut people off when they're speaking. Sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Um, someone asked him of something He wouldn't respond to them Except in like a beautiful way You know He wouldn't like respond to them harshly If they asked something of him Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam They're just like the people themselves. It's like the people themselves were expanded as a result of the beauty of his character. He he like fill them up. That's a good word for it. He would fill them up. So they go to the Prophet them. They come to him. You know, sometimes life is like that. Sometimes you go to people, you're empty, and you leave from them, and you're full. That's like you know, this is a gift from Allah Subhanahu wa Taala. They would go to the Prophet them. And he would fill them up. فَصَارَ لَهُمْ أَبًا وَصَارُوا عِنْدَهُ فِي الْحَقِّ they So he became like a father to the people. And and all of them were equal to him. Sallallahu alayhi wa He was like a father to them and all of them were equal. مَجْلِسُهُ مَجْلِسُ عِلْمٍ لَا تُرْفَعُ فِيهِ الْأَصْوَاتِ يُوَقِّرْ فِيهِ الْكَبِيرُ وَيُرْحَمَ الصَّغِيرُ His gathering, his majlis was a majlis of knowledge. R- voices were not raised in it 
the elderly were, were honored in it and the young were shown mercy in it. Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. May our majalis be majalis like that. <coughs> he said that anything that's good, if he's invited to any type of food, even if it's very humble, he would go to it. Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. I'm just trying to finish this section. Uh, and he would walk, he would ride, he would, anywhere he was invited, he would go. You know, he would milk his own animals, he would serve himself. Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. You know, this is all in the hadith of Hala radiallahu anha. Uh, so, you know, this is this is him, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. The next section is on the character of the Prophet, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So we'll stop here and continue next time. I hope that we'll be able to finish next time. So that, like, before the break, then after the break we can start with something else. So, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, Muhammad wa alayhi wa sallam, alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Any questions or comments or anything?